take your copy of the scriptures once more. <clears throat> reading our sermon text for this morning. Uh, I'm going to be reading First uh, John chapter two, uh, only verses fifteen to eighteen. Fifteen to eighteen. I think when I made the liturgy, I was a little overambitious with the length of that text. So it's going to be two parts. Um, we'll do our best this morning and <clears throat> be blessed, regardless. <clears throat> with what the Lord has for us there. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. Once more, give attention. This is the word of our God. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of the word and the hearing of that word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have told us that you have promised to bless your children with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We thank you, dear Lord, that as often as we gather in this room together as your people, that we sense that you are pouring down upon us grace upon grace. And we pray that as we turn out of your word, looking to your Holy Spirit for help that all of us may be aware of the presence of the Lord Jesus and that we may be confident that he knows us fully. And we pray that we may come to know him better and more and love him better and more fully and truly. We thank you, Father, for your powerful word to shape us and to mold our lives. Help us to know, dear Lord, with confidence and joy that we are clay in the hands of the potter, and that you are good, and that you are gracious, and that you are for us. Lord, we pray, mold and transform us more and more into the likeness of your dear Son, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear us and minister to us through your word, we pray. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, it's been said that the mention of the clock as we were discussing this week, some of us, um, has changed our world, changed the world. One philosopher noted that at the beginning of the 14th century, the clock, what? It made us first the timekeepers, and then time savers, and now time servers. And among many other things, this has had the effect of disconnecting us from God's creation, right? The flow of Uh, times and season that the Lord has built in to his creation. And our text this morning tells us about time, the time that we're living in, and that we live in a particular time, and it's a time that we live in. It is the passing world, and it is the present hour, right? The passing world and the present hour. And as believers, we we should have a particular sense of time, The world has a very different view of time than uh, we as God's people have. We know that we are living in a time that is passing away, a passing world. 
Even as John says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he goes on to verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. See the contrast there. And John here is not merely talking about the world, right? Uh, the planet or the cosmos or all of creation. He's explaining that for the Christian, when we look at the universe, look at his creation, we reflexively look beyond the universe in wonder and praise and awe at the creator of that universe. John's talking about, he defines it in the middle of those two verses, in verse 16, right? He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle John says that all of this is passing away. And we see what he's doing here, right? There's this contrast. When the follow, when followers of Christ, right, Christians, look at their lives and the things that they have, their possessions, their relationships, their pleasures, their loves, the Christian knows that they're passing away. They're passing away. There is a planned obsolescence to all of these things. And because of that, they can have a proper perspective, right? That they're not permanent riches to me. They're not my greatest, dearest treasures to me. And therefore, they're not out of balance or control me as a believer or dictate our value or our worth based on these things. We don't, des- uh, we don't desire them in that way, right? What about the non-believer? How does the non-Christian look at these things? Well, of course, they're bound by them. All that he sees and desires and gains and possesses, because that's all there is to life. That is the place of their devotion and affection. And what they become to the person who's not a follower of Christ are what? Idols. They're all that they have, and they're passing away. As a Christian, you look at creation and your eyes are near blinded by the glory of the creator, right? Creation screams of God's, uh, of the creator and of his glory and majesty. And we're driven, all of, all of life, all the things of this life draw our affections, not to those things, but to God's grace, right? Who graciously grants them to us. And we're driven to give thanks to this God and for his rich blessing and driven to appreciate and care for that creation, for his glory. John's explaining that non-Christians don't do that. They can't do that. Their affection is in the stuff. It's in the relationships, the people, the power, and they become their gods. But John says the Christian is a person who has come to the awareness that the world is passing away. And I live in a time when the world is passing away. This is why, brothers and sisters, it's so, so important and critical that we never hold things in this world so closely or tightly looking for satisfaction from them, the satisfaction that only God can give. This world and the things of the world are passing away. But God will never pass away. God will never pass away. That very thing, that person that is to satisfy our souls has no shelf life. It will not cease to be. He will not cease to be. Only Jesus 
can truly and fully and finally satiate the heart. Christ alone satisfies. Jesus alone fills that need for which we were created. And when he does, all the good things he's given us are all the sweeter. This text tells us that God's people realize that they live in a time when the world and everything in it is passing away. Verse 17 again, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see the contrast there, the passing world and the doer of God's will abiding forever. What is it about the doer of God's will? He has the love of the Father abiding in him. This is John's point through the whole, since the beginning. And when that's true of a person, the love of the world begins to dissolve and crumble and fade away. None of us are immune to the sticky black allure of the things of this world. It's hard to be aware of and to fight against these things. In fact, for all of your struggling, you can't resist. You can't win the victory against them. But the aged apostle John says what? He tells us the glorious news that we are not alone in that fight, in that struggle. And that's the best news of all. It's the best news of all. You know, I was in seminary. I mentioned to, I'm sure before, Um, so I apologize for the repetition. Uh, I don't remember when I did this, so I'm going to tell you again. When I was in seminary, uh, I would write book reviews and articles for the, the bookstore and for the, the seminary's uh, website and publications. And one of the books that I reviewed <clears throat> was a book that I had read many times before coming to seminary. It's one of my, it's, it's, it's a, indeed a glorious treatment. It's uh, a book by a man named Walter Marshall, and it's called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. Right? The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And you can kind of tell by the title of that, book, um, the era that it comes from, right? We don't have titles of books like that very often anymore, but what I was shocked by was the response to it, right? I was shocked at the number of students uh, surprised by Marshall's point, Marshall's biblical point. These are graduate-level men, most of them lifelong believers, sitting under preaching for all of their lives, and it was new and strange to many of them that the thing that puts you in right standing before the holy God is trusting in the work of Jesus, right? The gospel, grace through faith, right? The work of Christ is the ground for justification, the ground for our being right with God. Our faith is the instrument of salvation. They all got that. That's not what shocked them. The thing that they didn't get that was an aha for them, they weren't familiar with, was that the gospel isn't just what gets you right with God justification. But the gospel is also what gospel is also what makes you holy, right? It's what sanctifies you. And I've been shocked and saddened at the number of people who don't grasp this and the glory that goes with it and the freedom that goes with it. Many reasons why this is so prevalent. Surely much of it is because of bad errant preaching and teaching that says, yes, the gospel makes you a Christian but it's the law that makes you sanctified. It's the law that makes you better. It's the law that makes you grow in holiness. Keeping that law makes you grow in holiness. And I implore you, brothers and sisters, not to believe this. You can't make yourself better or holy by keeping the law. Your growth in holiness isn't accomplished by your attempts to keep the law. And this is important. If you remember nothing else, Remember this, 
right? Believing the gospel, that Christ came into his creation, that he lived the perfect life which earned merited heaven for those who trust in him. He died in their place, that he rose again. Right? That is what gets you saved. Believing the gospel. And believing the gospel is also what gets you sanctified. It's also what gets you sanctified. Trusting in Jesus for the entry into the Christian life and trusting in Jesus for every step and every breath of the Christian life. We grow by trusting and believing in Jesus. We don't self-sanctify. Our text here tells us what Paul in Philippians says elsewhere. God, God works in us to work out our salvation. Right? Because he is working in us, we grow and obey, and we begin to keep his law more and more because we've been changed. And that's really diff- all the difference in the world, right? It's all the difference in the world. All other systems of belief, all other false religions, including the pseudo-intellectual uh, atheism, right? they all teach that we are changed from the outside in. And even distorted aberrations of Christianity do this. <clears throat> I'm sure you're well, you're well aware Right? They beat you, they, 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 they beat people up uh, and yourselves up with the law, and you'll do better. Right? That's the, the way it seems. It's the legalistic version of that old saying you may have heard uh, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Right? Have you heard that phrase? That's kind of the same thing. This will continue to beat you with the law until you start to grow and change. But this is death. This is not freedom. It's not life. This issues forth only in death. Right? The analogy has been made that this is like trying to make a dead orange tree produce fruit by stapling fresh oranges onto the dead branches. You've not, made a, you've not made a living tree of that tree. That doesn't get you a living, flourishing orange tree. Change, growth comes rather where? From the inside out. It's not the outside in, it's the inside out. And God says, what? He says, I will change your heart and you will be new and you will be alive and live more and more for me, my way. That's his promise. And when he gives us a new heart, this it's a reality. We're imperfect to be sure. But Jesus was perfect and he earned heaven for us. And as we're united to him, we can begin to move in that direction. Our text this morning is telling us that we struggle against the sticky, polluting things of this world, good and bad, because we're made new. But we also, right, we struggle because we're new, uh, been made new. But we also have something else for the battle. And that something else is the overwhelming sense of the Father's love abiding in us. The satisfaction of the gospel's work to deliver us from the trappings of the world uh, this happens because it displaces those trappings and it replaces them with something else. Those who are in Christ have a new affection, as the old sermon tells us. And that new affection has a jettisoning uh, power, an expulsive power. And that affection of Christ empowers you to be delivered from the world's shiny things. They're no longer your idols. Right? We learn this first from realizing that those belonging to Jesus have a different sense of time. Where are we in the world? What is going on in the course of redemptive history? And then secondly, John tells us <clears throat> we're living in a time when the last hour has already struck, right? the present hour. Right? We're living in the passing world, but also we're living in the present hour. 
Did you ever notice that it says that there in verse 18? <clears throat> John says, children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. Some of you may be aware of people very excited about the last things, right? Uh, I used to think it was just on the West Coast because, you know, it's the West Coast, um, but it's not just the West Coast. And the question is asked, do you ever think we're living in the last days? But are these the last days? Well, what's the Bible's answer to that question? Certainly we're living in the last day. Because the Bible's teaching is that those last days begin when Christ was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, Peter said, this is the sign that the last days have come. We also hear the question, well, do you think that we're living in the last hour of the last day? Because, you know, there's the times of the signs and all this other stuff is going on. And there's wars and earthquakes and criminals are out of control. And there's a really cool heifer uh, getting ready to be slaughtered somewhere in Israel. To go back to the types. In our prophecy and current events lining up perfectly, don't you think we're living in the last hour? The question comes. And the answer again, of course, is what? Yes, we're living in the last hour. How do we know that? Well, John has just told us, 1 John chapter 2, children, this is the last hour. What is John getting at here? What is he talking about? What's John getting at about how the Christian thinks about time and these uh, parameters? Well, we can look look at John's gospel and have a clue, right, of what he's doing, right? It's the same author, the gospel of John and the letters of John. And we see this connection, this, this, the gospel, we see this a connection to Christ's teaching in that gospel, right? Remember Jesus, uh, throughout his work, um, he saw, he talked about them in terms of three hours, right? Have you ever thought about this or noticed this in the gospels? Three hours. The first hour is when he is crucified for our sins, right? We have references to these throughout John. Remember at the wedding of Canaan? In John chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, it says, When they ran out of wine, when the wine ran out, rather, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, do you remember? Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's forecasting. And then over and over in John's gospel, my hour has not yet come. And then, remember he says, the hour has come. What was that? For him to be crucified, right? The hour is at hand. The hour has come. And then Jesus speaks about a second hour. There was the hour when he would pour out his spirit on all people, all of his people. And this, of course, is what we read again in Acts uh, on the day of Pentecost, right? The pouring out of the spirit, right? Just as we Uh, This is why we pour out the waters of baptism. When we baptize, we pour. It's indicative of this uh, pouring out of the Spirit. And it's the glorious, also the glorious experience of living in the grace of the Holy Spirit into which every Christian is brought, right? Remember Romans 5.5, this beautiful imagery, if you've never, if it's never um, struck you and halted you to give praise. Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts right? What a beautiful picture. What a glorious reality. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which he has given to you, 
right? So that's the second hour. And then there is the last hour. This is the time between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the return of the Lord Jesus in majesty and glory. This, says John, is the last hour. And this is really the same thing that we read that Peter says, the way James describes it, it's the way Paul describes it, it's the way Jude describes it. 2 Timothy 3, James 5, 2 Peter 3, Judah 18, Jude 1, 18, if you will. We're living in the last hour. The last hour between the glorifying of Christ Jesus in his ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit and his coming again. The coming of Jesus to bring time and history and all things to conclusion. And that's the time we're living in. Now, it would be a failure not to discuss the glories of that conclusion, right? The conclusion to which Jesus brings all things. What is the glorious, most God-glorifying doxological chart of the last things, right? We've all seen charts of last things. The chart is this. When Jesus returns, everything happens. That's it. When Jesus returns, everything happens. And it's wonderful and it's glorious. He returns and our bodies are glorified. And the killing of death takes place for good and for all, forever. Notice how Paul says this, and we'll close with this, and we'll pick up with the remainder of First John 2 uh, next week. But notice how Paul, what he says, um, if you would turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, A glorious, glorious chapter, to be sure, in all of Scripture. First Corinthians 15, uh, verse 54 and 55, Paul says this, of this, of this time, this conclusion. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? These are such comforting words, brothers and sisters. Paul is saying here that when the final day comes, then this saying will come to pass. And notice what Paul does. He quotes from two prophets in this section, the broader section, um, He goes from two prophets, and the prophets are Hosea and Isaiah. Hosea and Isaiah. And it's there that the prophet foretold of the great day when God's people will see the Lord himself and and we will rejoice. And again, it's not a time in glory, right, as in in our final state of us floating around on a cloud, like a cartoon caricature that the culture wants to portray. It will not be a floating, meaningless existence. It will be better than anything we can imagine in this life, Scripture tells us. Better than getting back to normal, right? We don't want to get back to the garden. Apologies to the, the old song, right? We don't want to get back to normal. We don't want to get back uh, better, right? What we're going to, we want, it's going to be better than uh, the most glorious thing you can think of, better than your anniversary or children being born or better than your promotion at work or getting that degree. Nothing can be compared to having, being in resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to how Isaiah describes this. Isaiah 25, verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, 
of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And I hope you're hearing echoes there. Echoes throughout the New Testament, even in 1 Corinthians 15, even in Revelation at the end in 21. And can you imagine Right? These things don't drop out of the air and have no connection. And can you imagine what Isaiah is discussing here? Before the Lord, feasting with him. You'll be with him, dear Christian, face to face forever. You'll be in the new creation, in a whole new world of delight and pleasure. And, you know, there's always those cynical people uh, trying but failing to be clever. And they say things like, I want to get bored after a while in heaven. I want to get bored. You know, sometimes we might think this ourselves, honestly. Will we get bored in glory? At some point, won't we have seen it all? Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to seriously commit to meditating upon heaven when and if you think these things. And you know I've beat this drum for years, as you, those of you who've been here. We must be people who can get quiet and think and pray and meditate upon his word. Take some time and seek in the scriptures and seek the spirit in meditating on that place where you'll be spending all of eternity. You know, the Puritans refer to this as tuning your heart for glory, preparing us now, right? John Owen talked about if you have no desire or taste for the Lord in this life, why do you think you will in the next? And so we prepare our hearts, all that we go through, having our brainwashed minds brained with the, uh, washed with the truth of God's word, where we will be forever. It will be a blessing to you as you meditate upon it. It will stretch you. It will correct your perspective. And you'll find that you'll be paid back richly by this. We'll always desire more and more intimacy and knowledge about the Lord. And he will give you more and more and more and more of himself. Right? We lift up our cup. Then more, Lord, more of you. And he will fill it more and more and more and overflowing. It's there that we'll enjoy work free from frustration. There will, with all of God's people, all of glorified creation, his good creation, more than we could ever imagine. Only all of it transformed, right? Creation, but transformed, made new, free from sin and the fall. And we will enjoy them to the glory of God in an altogether greater way, beyond which we could, the mind can comprehend. And one of the most significant things about the new heaven and the new earth is the absence of death. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the absence of death. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed, we read. Will not be allowed to remain. Will never again rear its terrible head. It will not have a hold on anything. No more funerals, no more graveyards. You know, it's a curious thing. Uh, 
is why so many try. This is what they try to do um, do now. Is most of our much of our culture is focused on uh, attempting uh, that very thing to remove the idea of of death and the reality of death in in aging and decaying. Right, many graveyards historically in the back or next to churches are moved out of the neighborhoods, out of sight. It's distasteful. We don't want to believe that it's true. Death isn't real. We even speak of death in euphemisms, right? It's easier and less painful. So-and-so passed away. But death is real. It cannot be avoided. Even if we close our eyes, it's still there. And it hurts when someone dies. It's painful when someone dies. But in the glory of the age to come, there will be no more death. No more death. There will be no more disease or decay. No walkers, no wheelchairs. We won't see family members fighting cancer and wasting away. We won't see loved ones plagued with Parkinson's or dementia. We won't have degenerating discs in our backs or bad knees or headaches or pain in the new creation. No more. None of those things will be there. The last trumpet will sound, Paul says, and announce that the day has come. The Lord is here, and everything happens. And we raise our glass to him and feast with him and praise in praise to his faithfulness, to his promise all along. He has accomplished. He has brought it all to conclusion without letting us down. Right? You remember in Joshua, there were no falling words of the Lord. All that he had said, it came to pass. And it will be declared on that day, Behold, this is the Lord our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And the Lord, your Lord, has already guaranteed that day for you who belong to and love him. You see, he has secured victory, that victory for us through Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul says in verse 56 of 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death uh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Right? What does that mean? Christ has already come. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he has secured this new day for those who belong to him. And if you are listening to me today, if you are here, and you do not belong to him, if you're uncertain of that new day of glory for you, I plead with you to come to him. Come to him. Come to him for life, this life and the life to come. What a promise. He will not reject any who come to him in faith. Rather, what does he say? Come to me, I will give you rest. Rest. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, right? The wages of sin are what? Death. We know this. We know that sin is a poison. It's a fatal poison. It's brought death into the human race. Right? Remember way back in Genesis, in the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And death has saturated and terrorized man ever since that time. And what gives this poison its power is the law, the law. Sin is breaking God's law. It's a rebellion and treachery against the holiness of God. And that holiness is not removed, it does not decay, it does not diminish, it is not brought down. The law does not give you life. It cannot give you life. It's not its function. It's not what it was for. The law is unable to change anyone. 
is powerless to make us obey. It provides no gift. Rather, it demands of us. It requires obedience from us. And it declares to all of us who are paying attention that we're sinners. It tells us that we within ourselves are without hope in the world. We're without a hope. But praise be to our King and Savior. Praise be to Him. Jesus has come and kept the law for us. He's done for us what the law could never do. Christ fulfilled the law's demands perfectly. He perfectly satisfies its requirements. And as a result, what? Those who are in Christ are no longer under the law's condemnation. You who are in him are no longer under law's debt. Christ has paid the penalty. He has removed the penalty. The law for you is now a rule for life. It's a revelation, the declaration of the life that God uh, wants for his people, that he wants, that he requires, that he demands. The lethal poison that we all deserve as a result of Christ paying the penalty for us, that poison has been drawn out of us, right? Jesus dealt with it, canceling it by being a substitute for us and taking the punishment in our place. And you see, it is through the person and work of Jesus Christ that we have victory, we have victory. Verse 47, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? It is in Christ alone, in Christ alone who has lived the victorious life. And it's through his victory that we have victory because he has united us to himself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? Your victory is in Christ. He is ours. It's his victory. Well, you may be thinking, if you take just a moment, you may not feel victorious at all. Perhaps you're like me. I feel quite defeated most of the time. I don't feel at all victorious, if I'm honest. In my fight against sin, in my trust in God's provision, in his providence, my contentment in suffering, I don't feel victorious in these things, in my weakness, in my usefulness, in my lack of usefulness. And at times, I feel like the opposite of victory, right? Very often, we feel like we're defeated, like we're failures. Failures in hope and failures in keeping the law. Failures in believing. But take heart, dear Christian. Take heart. Remember and believe that Christ died for failures like you and like me. And truth be told, if we ourselves were victorious in ourselves, we wouldn't need a Savior. But Jesus is the one who kept the law in our place. And so we limp through this life and we struggle against sin by the power of the Spirit and the changed heart within us and dwelling within us. Moving us along, we strive to obey. We confess it's hard, it's labor, but it's not in vain. It's not in vain. Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God gives victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, do these things. Labor is not in vain. Because you have victory in the Lord, brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Right? Where is your confidence? What is our confidence and assurance? 
How is this the case, right? We do so knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's there. What is that? Is there hope there? Is there comfort in these, these words? Is there encouragement? Oh, there is great encouragement. Great motivating, life-giving encouragement. Giving to the church for the work of the Lord is not in vain. Service is not in vain. Spending time with the saints who struggle or need a listening ear or who have suffered or need prayer, none of it is in vain. It's for God's glory. And it's, again, the way that he shapes us for heaven to be who he wants us to be. Right? Our help is not in vain. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's inconvenient, those labors also are not in vain. Striving to reconcile relationships rather than just walking away. Even when not reciprocated, those efforts, those labors are not in vain. Giving your time and your treasure in the Lord is not given in vain. And these are not in vain because what? Christ has given us the victory. He is the victor and we are united to him. And all that is his is ours. And so as you go back forth into this uncertain and unstable world, let us remember, brothers and sisters, we've been given victory. And that it's not only for the future glory that we long. Your victory has implications for you now, in this present time, even though passing away. There's implications for us now. And so let us trust what, the, what, the, what God's word says about us. Let us flee from that treadmill of merit and working ourselves for ourselves, thinking that it's meriting us good. And we're getting more and more right before God by our work, thinking we can attain what's already ours in Christ. It's for us to trust and believe what he says about us. He doesn't see you as a broken sinner, stumbling and, and failing. He sees you in the perfect robes of his son's righteousness. That is all the glory in the world. And so let us live our lives from the reality of who we are. New creations, right? Forgiven, freed, united to Christ. See who you are, right? Then be who you are. Do you see who you are? Now live that out. Let us always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in him our labors are never in vain. To him be all praise and glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, bless it to our hearts. <clears throat> Lord, even as we reflect upon it ongoingly throughout this day and our, all of our lives, we do pray, Lord, come quickly. Send your son soon, O oh Lord. And we look for that day when it shall come and come to pass. <clears throat> that saying that you said, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith in him, that we would believe what you say concerning us. We pray, dear Lord, increase our faith, increase our hope in the promise that you've given us through him, and increase our love, we pray for him. We would love him more, and we love one another more, and that we would love and live our lives, even being being an example of Christ, even to our neighbors. Father, you sent, we acknowledge your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Grant that we may live all of our days in this faith, and so that in the final day we might enter into eternal rest.
Hear us, we pray, dear Heavenly Father. For we ask it all in Christ's glorious name. Amen.